I'm so thankful for God's word. When we can put it to song, especially, it just makes it more readily available in our minds. But such good truth in that, our good shepherd. And Jesus is our good shepherd, isn't he? Well, today we're going to continue on with our uh, study of 1 Peter. The sermon series is called Standing Firm in God's Grace. That's why Peter wrote this letter. At the very end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 12, he says that he's writing so that you will stand firm in God's true grace. So we're going to jump right in today. And so open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. On that Pew Bible, you can find it on page 1075. And I'm pretty sure if you stay with us for a while, you're going to memorize that page number because we keep coming back to it. You're going to want to have it open. We will be in 1 Peter in quite a different few places today, but have it open right there on, on chapter 1. And again, if you do not have an English Bible at home, we'd love for you to take that Bible as a gift. We really mean that. And would you please check in with our Connect Corner because they will be happy to connect with someone who can show you how to get the message of the Bible, how to study it, how to understand what God is saying. But we would be delighted for you to take that. May not be surprised that the Bible is the most printed book in the world. But second to it in the English language is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And in fact, this Saturday, that book will celebrate its 345th birthday when it was first published. Now, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress or know anything about it, you may realize how it has helped Christians, really for centuries. It helps us to understand how to trust God while we are pilgrims. And this is a long and dangerous journey on our way to what Bunyan called the celestial city, where our good king awaits us. Now, Bunyan wrote that book really out of a lot of personal trials that he endured. He understood that there were trials that came from following Jesus Christ. Bunyan was a gifted preacher. He was a gifted pastor. Just down the road from us, about an hour in Bedford, hundreds of people would come to hear him preach. The only problem was he didn't have a license to preach from the state church. And so soon he was arrested. And he was given an ultimatum. Stop preaching or go to jail. And he famously said, if I'm freed today, I will preach tomorrow. And so he remained a prisoner for the next 11 years. Well, after he was released briefly, he went on and preached. And again, he was brought back in for a number of years after that. And it was only because of the appeal of the eminent theologian and pastor John Owen that Bunyan was released finally. Today, you can see his grave down in Bunhill Fields in London. He's buried right next to Owen and many other godly men who are there as well. Here's the thing, though. Bunyan could have avoided the whole thing if he had just agreed not to preach. During prison, his daughter died. His wife was really destitute because she had no way to really make money. But he was so committed to God's calling on his life. And at her encouragement, he remained in jail. He agonized over this decision, as you, you might imagine. But his trial taught him that what we're going to look at in 1 Peter is true for all people at all times. Though it had been written 1,500 years earlier. And today, if you're wondering, how would you do in a moment like that? How would you survive under the persecution from friends or from formerly from the government? Bunyan's life and our text today will show you that you can have hope 
that you can remain faithful when pressure comes because God's true grace is for you and it is designed to help you stand firm. Now, for those who are willing, I invite you to stand with me and follow along. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So let's look at God's holy scripture. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Friends, the rules of the Lord are true, and they are altogether righteous, so welcome it today. Please have a seat. Well, here's the big idea for verse 1. We started it last week. We're going to finish verse 1 today, and it's this. 1 Peter 1, verse 1, presents two mindsets that are essential so that you will stand firm in God's grace. That first mindset is to understand that Christians are elect, chosen by God, chosen for him to shed his love on you. The second mindset is that Christians are exiles. And these two seem to be in conflict because while we love to be loved by God, it's hard when he leads us into a situation of ongoing exile. And that's why we spent last week trying to understand what it means that God has elected you. Because if you don't understand that, it makes it living as an exile very difficult. Well, as we go back into this verse, let me remind you that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter is committed to only writing what the Lord Jesus wanted to be said. And so right here in verse 1 is exactly what these persecuted Christians needed in order to stand firm in God's true grace. And history reveals that these Christians thrived over the next couple hundred years under some of the most horrific persecutions from the Roman government. This truth that they understood here sustained them in those times. So it's a crucial that you understand the second mindset that Christians are exiles. Now, as we consider what it means for Christians to be exiles, we're going to approach this from four different angles. It's a, a beautiful, majestic peak, and there are a couple ways we can look at it, but before we summit it, we want to look at these different ways to approach it. So we're going to start out by the first approach, and that's explaining exiles, or we could ask a question, what is an exile? Now, I think you might know the term from today's society, they're exiles, people who are, have left their nation, they can't go back. And really, in this time, it had the idea of a resident who was living outside of their homeland, someone who's living in a foreign land. But the exile, no matter how long they lived there, was never fully welcomed in. The exile was an outsider. The exile sometimes would be mocked and scorned, would just be looked at funny, treated differently. God chose this word to describe how the world would treat his people. And so Christian, you are an exile. That refers to our relationship to the world, how they view us. Well, to, to get an idea of how Christians have become exile, we need to go on a journey. We're going to go back to Genesis 3. 
This is the, the moment where an Adam and Eve rebel against God's goodness and his righteous law. They take the fruit and they eat it. And so in that moment, God bashes them from the garden. The first case of being exiled. And here it is in Genesis 3.24. God drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword and that turned in every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So ever since this moment... All of humanity has lived in exile away from our home with God. Because we brought sin into the world, it is in the heart of every human being. Every son and daughter of Adam and Eve has been infected by sin. And so it is our nature to want to rebel against God. We, we tend to think if you treated us that way, fine. We're going to treat you that way. We're kicking you out of our kingdom, God. All of humanity inherited the sin. And from the moment of our conception, we are alienated and estranged from God. But by God's grace, we're not as bad as we could be. You see, every part of it is just corrupted, but there's so much more damage that we could do. But because we are corrupted, it results in evil thoughts and evil actions. Sin doesn't just bring about pain and suffering. It kills. It destroys. Worst of all, it belittles God. He's the giver of life, the Holy One. In fact, spiritually, we are all dead in our sins. Listen to how Ephesians 2.12 describes it. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope without God. That is a terrifying place to be. It may sound tragic, but folks, we are not victims here. God has offered us life and we've turned on him. We are his enemies. We've joined a satanic rebellion against God's rightful rule over our lives. Every day we willingly break his law. Colossians 1.21 puts it this way. We, were, we are alienated and hostile in mind. We do evil deeds. And that describes every single one of us before we are born again by his grace. Look, we see the ugliness of sinful humanity every day. And that's even before we leave our own home. Before we leave our own bed, just our attitudes are, are less than beautiful, aren't they? If you look at the history of humanity... It shows that we're not getting better. We're just getting worse. We invent new and more powerful ways to do damage, to express our rebellion. And here's the reality. Our condition is such that no human effort, no human wisdom can ever resolve. But in our, our self-delusion, we claim that everyone is basically good. This philosophy, though, stands in direct defiance of what the Bible says about us. The Bible shows what happens when God gradually withdraws his restraining hand. His hand immersively, daily restrains a fuller outbreak of the sin that is in us. So listen to this blunt indictment of humanity in Romans 1. And starting in verse 28, it says this. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do the things that are not proper. Having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, 
murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are not worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is our heritage. And those are the seeds we sow every day. But the fruit comes from a root. And the root of our alienation, the root of our animosity, it really sounds so ridiculous to the world that they dismiss it right out of hand. Here's the root of it. A few verses earlier in Romans 1, starting in verse 18, it explains where all this ugliness comes from. In verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And so what do we do? Here it comes. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Do you know why there's war today? Do you know why there's hatred on the streets? Because we don't honor God as God or give him thanks. We create our own idols and us primarily sit on the throne of our own hearts. But because of sin, we refuse to honor God Because that means obeying God. It means giving him proper place and worship. We refuse to give him thanks because that means we have to acknowledge that we are in debt, that we are not autonomous and self-sufficient. And really, it's our pride that rejects that, isn't it? We don't want to be seen as dependent on anyone, but we try to hide it with a braggadocious attitude. Really, we're born so self-absorbed, we take offense that the world doesn't wrap itself around us. We think honestly in our hearts that God owes us. Do you see how deep our rebellion goes? But friend, the scripture is clear. You know the truth. God has revealed it to you and put it inside you, but you suppress the truth. And every day your conscience will accuse you. Every day it'll tell you you are in rebellion against God. But here's the thing. If you haven't learned it already, rejecting God does not bring enlightenment. There's no freedom in that. All it does is it leads to futile thinking and a darkened heart. Like you might think you're wise, but the Bible says that you are, in fact, a fool. Here's the height of our foolishness. Instead of worshiping God, instead of receiving his goodness and and living in joyful submission to him, we make up our own gods. We invent them. So people worship what they think will solve their problems. Now here in the, the dignified secular West, we have things like technology. We worship money, entertainment, medicine, or or sports. But even here in the sophisticated 
nation of the United Kingdom. The latest census showed that shamanism is Wales and England's fastest growing religion, if you can call it that. Looking to all sorts of things to solve problems, chants and rhythms and drugs. It's been, in fact, increasing tenfold over the last 10 years. Now, thankfully, it still remains a small, disorganized following of about 8,000 people. But it shows how inclined we are to do anything other than submit ourselves to God. But if we look at our culture, we know the, the chief gods of our society. Science and sex. In fact, people are so radically committed to the sexual revolution and freedom that they will permanently mutilate their bodies. They will mutilate the bodies of their own children. They will take the lives of their unborn babies. This is insanity. But it shows how sin has so corrupted us. The Bible has many words for what we are doing, but it comes down to one word, and that's sin. Now, sin isn't a mistake, and it doesn't deserve pity. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 describes it in legal terms. It says this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So at the most basic level, sin is breaking God's law. But it's more than that. Sin is evil. It's flagrant. It stands in direct and purposeful opposition to God. It's rejecting God's rightful reign over us. Now, just like if you break a law of the city or a law of the nation, there are consequences. Likewise, there are consequences when we break God's law. The consequences are severe. God has told us this in Romans 3 or 6.23. The wages of sin is death. That's an eternal separation from God in a place of conscious suffering called hell. Ecclesiastes 7.20, what it says is true. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But God has provided a solution. It's called the gospel. That word means good news. And this is the good news that in spite of all that, God is willing to forgive you. Not just forgive you, but transform you, bring you into his family. And it's by faith in Jesus Christ that the judgment that you deserve for your sins was meted out on Christ himself on the cross. In that moment, God's righteous wrath is satisfied. And as a result, for all those who trust in Christ, you have a right relationship with God forever. It's Christ's work that reconciles sinners with God. It settles our dispute. Ephesians 2.14 says that Jesus Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It was through his perfect life, through his work on the cross, that Jesus Christ is qualified, uniquely qualified to bring peace between us and God. So Ephesians 2.16 goes on to say that his sacrificial work was done so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friend, you need to be reconciled to God. And reconciliation is accomplished through one means alone, that is by redemption. Redemption is a price paid for your debt to God by God himself. 
Redemption was a term used when there was a slave whose freedom was purchased. There was a redemption made. You see, a slave had no legal standing and no ability to purchase his own freedom. And it's with us the same way. We are enslaved to sin. We are dead in our trespasses. But in God, in grace, God acted. And Ephesians 1, 7 ties us into redemption. Speaking about Jesus Christ, it says, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So here's the question. How do you get this? This amazing gift for you, this reconciliation and redemption. Now the world will say, and other religions will say, you get it by doing good. Be good. Do enough good that you can offset the bad. But here's the problem. We keep doing bad things. Our debt keeps going. And our good will never offset the bad because even that is done in our own strength and pride. It just adds condemnation. Here's the reality. What Hebrews eleven six says is that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So God has told us that redemption that brings reconciliation with him comes only by grace through faith. You can add nothing. You know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the what? The gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So friend, it is by faith in Jesus Christ that you are redeemed and reconciled. It is trusting that the Lord has paid your debt and treasuring him in your heart. And then genuine faith goes to work. It it results in a life of, of seeking to turn away from sin. It's not perfection, but it is pursuing Christ and getting rid of everything that will hinder knowing him and becoming like him. And when you repent of your sin, when you trust in Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20 says, your citizenship is now in heaven. So when God redeems you, this world is no longer your home. And so Christian, now you're in exile. Now it took us a long time to get back here, but it was important to lay the foundation for why we are exiles to the world. So what is an exile? It's someone who's viewed and treated as an outsider. Hebrews 13, verse 13 says, Therefore, let us go to Christ outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. See, Christians leave everything to follow Christ, and they will endure much suffering because of that. What is an exile? It's a sojourner, someone who lives here but not as permanent citizens. Hebrews 11 talks about these chosen exiles of the past, and then in verse 13 it says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We come from a long line of noble and courageous exiles. But we must understand this, that we are pilgrims, we're estranged from the world. We live here, but our hope is not fixed here. It is in heaven, our true home. So that was the first angle. It was a long time we spent explaining exiles, but it prepares us now to look at the second angle. We need to identify the exiles. In other words, in what way are they exiles? Now, we saw some of this already, but more clarity is going to help us when we are treated as exiles. So Christian, the moment that you're born again, even though you were born here in the world and lived here among people, the moment that you're born again, the world doesn't take kindly to your switching loyalties. In fact, the world becomes hostile toward this. 
To paraphrase James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with God is enmity with the world? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God makes himself an enemy of the world. And not because we try to, it's just we want to do good. We are seeking the good of this land in which we live, but the world does not take kindly to us. Now, living God's way has eternal rewards, but it has temporal consequences. So back in 1 Peter, in chapter 4, verse 3, it describes how chosen exiles used to live. This was their identity. It says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here it comes. Living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That just gives us a clue that Peter's audience weren't just Jews. They were Gentiles as well. Now, not every unbeliever does all those things. But in the heart of every unbeliever is a seed that will do things like that. They will practice versions of those things. But when Christians stop going along with that, listen to what 1 Peter 4.4 says happens. With respect to this, when you start following God's ways, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So these Christians were maligned because they were not of this world. Now, decades ago, I remember the big uh, phrase was tolerance. The world was saying we need to tolerate one another, meaning tolerate other people's morality or versions of it. Funny thing is, though, tolerance is never enough because no one likes just to be tolerated, do they? So we're in an era right now where it's not enough to tolerate. Christians must celebrate the immorality of others. We read that already, Romans 1.32. It says that they demand that Christians give approval to those who practice the sins that we read about. There'll be cases that will come about hate crimes that will be leveled against Christians and things that we do that isn't supportive enough. So Christians, we must strive to follow Christ. We must strive to be obedient. We must strive to do good in this world, but know the world will take offense to us because we know the greatest good we can do is share the gospel of reconciliation with Christ. And so Peter, he's pointing out that as exiles, we reflect the great exile, Jesus Christ himself. Listen to his example given in 1 Peter 2, verse 21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What were his steps? Ones of suffering. And that's a path for all of us exiles. Again, in chapter 3, verse 18, Peter points to Christ. For Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And the greatest good that we can be brought to God comes through Christ's righteous sufferings. That path that Christ laid out for us is one that brings us immense good. But listen in verse, chapter 3, verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and here's part of the good that comes to us, if you are suffering for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Okay, this is not the way we think, is it? This is a fear-crushing blessing. If you're suffering for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So if you're in embattled exile today, look to Christ and see that suffering it has a different purpose for you. It is to bless you. Now we're told, don't be surprised when these trials come. He says in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
So exiles are identified by a common experience with Christ himself. Now, in God's wisdom, not every Christian will suffer a fiery trial. You may go through life and never experience what we read about in this letter. But we can know that whatever level of trial comes against you, it proves that you are one of God's chosen ones. Remember what we read in John 15. Jesus said, if the world hates you, it hated me first. What should we expect? We are not friends with this world, ultimately. Jesus said, if it persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But in all these things, they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So you can identify an exile not simply because they're suffering, but because they're suffering for the name of Christ. They're singled out for their loyalty to Christ. So Christian, the world hates you because it hates our Lord and our master. But your Lord and master stands with you. So far we've considered the Christian exile from explaining exiles and we took a different approach. We looked at identifying exiles. Now here's a third approach. They are thriving exiles. Now, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but the Bible usually is. So why are they exiles? What is the purpose? Why does God allow Christians to go through such difficult times? Is God like a spiritual evolutionist that is just going to see who's the surviving of the fittest? Is he trying to thin out the crowd and so he can take the best and the brightest? Oh, beloved, you know that's not our God. He's kind and compassionate. He's good. He, he doesn't treat us that way. Whether we have a minor inconvenience or a massive catastrophe, every hardship is purposeful, ultimately so that you will thrive. Now, at this point, we have to pause. We have to acknowledge there are limits to what we can discover. There's limits to what we can understand. And so at the outset, we have to approach this with humility and a commitment to trust God. In his wisdom and his love, God has not told us everything. So I want to call your attention to five reasons why suffering exiles are thriving exiles. First, exiles are thriving because they are called to this. This is your assurance it doesn't sneak up on you. It doesn't get past God's watchful gaze. God rather calls you into this. 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So chosen exiles are called to this. What is this? Look just one verse up. 1 Peter 2 verse 20. When you do good and suffer for it and you endure. Okay, so Christians are not chosen and called to a life of health and prosperity like the false teachers lie about today. Now, God may grant you money. He may grant you good health. But it's not sinful to have money and health, but that's not God's purpose for you. So again, in this verse 20 of chapter 2, it says, being able to endure suffering for doing good. Here it is. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Christian, you're called not just to suffer. You're called to receive the gift of endurance, endurance. Suffering is the servant who brings you that endurance. And it's the same endurance to sustain the Lord Jesus Christ when he was reviled so that he didn't revile in turn. 
Here's an example of what endurance does for us. Listen to Romans 5, 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings. Wait, hold, just pause right there. We rejoice in our sufferings? Paul is saying this, and he suffered greatly. Why do we rejoice in them? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is an amazing result. A hope that will not let you down. So knowing that Christians are called to that, to receive endurance, leads to a second truth that will help us thrive. God called you to it because it is God's will. Listen to 1 Peter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering as a Christian is according to God's will. That means there's a limit to it. You will not suffer a moment more than God has determined. But knowing this helps us to entrust our soul to our faithful creator and continue to obey while doing good, just like Jesus did. This is what a thriving exile looks like, even during hardship. I love how Paul put it in Philippians 1.29. It's so clear. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God grants both faith and suffering. Okay, now, it's at this moment we have to ask a question. Is Christ Lord or not? Does he have authority over your life or not? You see, when Christ calls you to himself, he bids you come and die. Take up your cross daily and follow him. And so when you believe in him, you surrender full authority over your life to him. And that would be terrifying if it weren't for the fact that Christ Jesus is a good and wise God and powerful. So we're called to this. It is God's will. But here's a third reason why we can thrive even during suffering. It makes us holy. Makes us holy? How does it make us thrive? What is, how is that good news? 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, some say that following Christ is not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. Now, there's some truth to that. If you come to Christ only for the benefits, if you only come for personal fulfillment, you will be disappointed. In fact, you will probably not be saved but for the one who comes to receive forgiveness of sins, to be reconciled with God, there is a happiness that nothing in this world can replace. Because you see, the Christian life is one of increasing holiness. For the Christian, a holy life is a happy life. Think about it. As you see holiness grow in you, you realize I'm reflecting my hero, my God. I'm showing the world how good he is. Think about how utterly relieving it is to not have any skeletons in your closet. To not have anything that people can bring out and use against you. No guilt that they can hold over you. No shame to be had because you are holy in God's sight. You are reflecting his character and that is the heart of the Christian's joy. To be like our Lord and Savior. And suffering helps break you of love of sin and it builds your love for Christ. Here's a fourth reason. 
Suffering helps us to know God deeply. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so connect the dots here. Christ suffered for you. He's left you an example so you might follow in his steps. When you walk on the steps of Christ and you receive suffering, you realize, I'm in the company of someone great, the greatest one. I'm walking in his steps. But not only do you get that encouragement on following Christ, but he's there right with you. He carries you all the way. It's why Paul declared in Philippians 3.10 that he pressed on to know Christ, to receive the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings in order to be like him in his death. And then a few verses later, he says to all Christians, join in imitating me in this. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So when we follow in Christ's steps, when we keep our eyes on him, we have a sweet fellowship with other thriving exiles, namely with Christ himself. One of my favorite truths about this is in chapter 4, verse 13. Listen to the connection between suffering and closeness to Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. Oh, there's crazy Paul again. Rejoice in your sufferings. Why would he say such a thing? Listen closely. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when, you, when his glory is revealed. This is not that we normally think to tell mistreated Christians. Rejoice, Christian. But Paul was, Peter was serious here. He lived this out. In Acts 4, he's brought before the authorities and they say, do not preach in the name of Christ. And he said famously, we must obey God rather than men. And what do they do in response? They beat him and the apostles and they told them, don't preach about the name of Christ. But listen to how he responded back then. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So Paul, I'm sorry, Peter knew what he was talking about when he wrote chapter 4, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. And then a couple verses later in chapter 4, verse 14, here comes why we rejoice. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Here it comes. Why are you blessed? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do you realize that, Christian? God himself and the spirit of Christ is present with you in such a close way that you will never experience that closeness any other way. Such that you will look suffering in the face and you'll say thank you for bringing me closer to Christ it's just a, a way of repeating Psalm 34 18 the Lord is near to the brokenhearted now these are just a few reasons why exiles can thrive during suffering but know this it is not accidental it's not purposeless it is designed by God for blessing you and for many wonderful reasons so the three angles we've looked at so far, explaining, identifying, and thriving exiles. And there's one final one I want to glimpse here before we leave. The final angle is locating where these exiles were. Now tonight we're going to look more in depth at this, but look at the end of verse 1. It says, these exiles are dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Places that are probably on your bucket list to go for holiday this year. These are all located in northern and central Turkey today, but it says that they are dispersed there. They're, they're scattered abroad. 
It's a formal term for Jews who were exiled from their land and then were never, never went back when they were able to return. It's diaspora, the, the dispersion. These people who were living there weren't just accidentally there. This is the point. God scattered them there on purpose. This area is about the size of Germany and Peter's writing to all these Christians scattered around there and what he's saying is God has you here for a reason. What is that reason? Well, I think we get it so clearly stated when Jesus said it in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ, he commanded, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So go means wherever you're scattered, as you're living there, be about the king's business. Even if it brings persecution, you're blessed, but be about his business. This is your true vocation regardless of your occupation. Your daily life is to be dedicated to this noble task of making disciples who will know how to stand firm in God's grace when suffering comes. So beloved, don't be surprised when this brings hardship. You are in exile after all. It doesn't matter what trials come. It doesn't matter what they may say. Christ has made a promise to never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So chosen exile. The Lord is with you no matter what may come. I'm going to invite the music team to come back up for a final song. All I have is Christ. And so even if you're a chosen exile, you're going to be hard-pressed at times to stand firm. But the strength to follow Christ comes from God and not ourselves. Our job is only to boast in Christ. So let's stand and do that together.